Today in the offices of the Carolina Quarterly, we hear a host of new voices, learn that apparently the books are wrong, and take a deep dive into Bigfoot agnosticism. That's coming up on CQ Speaks. listeners and welcome back to CQ Speaks. We took a slightly longer than intended break between episodes to deal with the outskirts of two different hurricanes and to do the layout and proofs for a whole new issue. But we're finally back in the pink, are they mauve? They might be mauve, rooms of the CQ office here at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Once again, I am Sarah George Waterfield, editor-in-chief of the Carolina Quarterly. We've got a couple of different writerly things for you today, all related to our new fall-winter issue, 68.1, which is hitting the mailrooms on November 1st, despite the fact that the cost of paper has gone up three times in the last year. Um, This is the issue that features our winners from the Wake and Dream Again contest, which you will um, hear a little bit more about later in the episode. That was a short fiction contest that was judged by our faculty advisor, Daniel Wallace, um, who also did the art for the cover of the new issue. Um, So look forward to that. So two different segments today. Later in the episode, we'll go back to our poetry editor, Calvin, to get a sneak peek of a gorgeous poem by Charlotte Muzi that's featured in the new issue. First, however, I'm joined by one of our two fiction editors, Paul Blom. Paul, introduce yourself to the people. All right. Uh, Well, um, thanks for having me. So I am, as you said, one of the two fiction editors here at the CQ. Uh, I am a second year student in the PhD program in English and Comparative Literature. Um, I'm focusing on the long 20th century American Lit, so I guess American Lit from 1865 up through Contemporary, um, and its intersections with trauma studies. So I read a lot of very fascinating uh, narratives about a lot of very terrible, terrible events. Um, As happens when you're in when you're in a PhD program. Exactly, exactly. Um, So Paul, what do you have for us today? So today I'm excited to share with you uh, my recent interview with Kathleen McNamara, who was, as you know, the first place winner in our recent fiction contest. Um, A few weeks ago I had a chance to talk with her at length about uh, her writing process and uh, her story, um, Cryptozoology, which won the contest. Very interested and excited to share her insights on her process and her piece. Great. Um, All right, well, let's get to the interview. Hello everyone, my name is Paul Blom and I'm one of the fiction editors for the Carolina Quarterly. I'm pleased to be here today with Kathleen McNamara, whose short story, Cryptozoology, won the first place prize in our fiction contest. Our editors here at the CQ selected the finalists, and among those finalists, author Daniel Wallace selected the contest winners. Kathleen, I want to start by just saying congratulations on your selection as the contest winner. Um, I really enjoyed your story and I'm excited to see it in print in our upcoming issue. Thank you. It was really exciting, and I'm really happy that it found such a loving home. Um, So to begin, uh, I'd like to just ask, you know, to tell our audience a bit about yourself, your background, what you do now. Sure. Uh, Well, I teach writing at Arizona State University, where I finished my MFA there in 2014. Uh, Before that, I used to live in New York, for six years, and I worked at the New York Review of Books for a couple years, um, and I went to college there, and so I've sort of started a whole new life when I moved to Arizona, and now I live in the middle of nowhere. 
sometimes that can be good for uh, uh, creative outlets, I guess. It is, yeah. It is. Uh, there's a lot of magic in the air. Nice. I'd like to kind of take a step back and just ask, how did you react when you uh, received the email from us saying that you had uh, been selected for publication and, and that you actually were the first place winner? Uh, well, I was, I'd been at dinner with my mom and my husband and our newborn, who was like six weeks old at the time, and it was like a terrible monsoon in Sedona, Arizona, and uh, so we had spent the evening watching these like amazing lightning strikes over the red rocks and then we had to drive through this monsoon and we stopped at a grocery store to get garlic and my husband went in to get garlic while i sat in the car with her son and i looked at the email and i just started laughing for like i don't know like five minutes and my son was just sort of watching me like what's going on and yeah i was pretty i was pretty astonished well uh I, we were definitely excited to uh send out those emails and and get uh, get a hold of your story and be able to uh, publish it. So n- moving backward in time, what were your thoughts or expectations when you submitted your story to the contest? Well, it's funny. I had had this story sort of kicking around on my computer for about two years, and I had never really pinned it down. Um, and around February, I saw the contest call, and I thought, this is a good deadline for me to finish the story because it seemed like a really good fit so uh, yeah I it had been kind of like germinating and marinating for a long time before I saw the contest and that was sort of the impetus to actually finish it Um, especially because I was pregnant at the time and it was hard to like balance everything and it was nice to have like a set deadline to say like okay I'm going to submit this to this contest I think it's actually might fit the bill pretty well. Yeah, so so, so that leads kind of naturally, I think, into my next, one of my other questions. I was going to ask about your writing process in general. You mentioned this story, you know, kind of was sitting and germinating for a long time. Is that how you usually work, or um, is it yeah, more I, sporadic? I think it depends. Or? Like, there are stories that just sort of strike you, and you're able to write a draft really quickly. Like, I think Murakami says that he writes a draft of a story in a week. Um, and sometimes I get lucky, but a lot of the time it's something that I ha- really have to, like, work through over and over again until it seems like I have the right combination of things. Um, or, like, this story, for example, it sort of started as two different stories, and then I realized that they kind of were all tangled up together, and I was able to get through it Um over time, letting it sort of sit in the back of your mind for a while and not kind of pushing it. So, yeah, I think my writing process changes depending on the type of thing it is, but in general, I'm somebody who will let it sit for a while before I feel like it needs attention again. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, and it def- and you mentioned it help, um, finding it helpful to have that concrete deadline to kind of push to, to, yeah. to really focus and, and finish the story. Um, so, you know, I know you mentioned um, your teaching writing. Um, not everybody who who studies or teaches uh, uh, writing or literature, um, they don't necessarily all compose their own pieces. So what got you into um, writing or writing fiction uh, in um, specifically? Oh, that's like an interesting question. Um, I guess I had a really uh, attentive 
mentor and as an undergraduate, Mary Gordon, um, who's a New York writer, and she was the person I think who kind of gave me the confidence to continue to try to try to write. Um, you always feel like, who am I to write? You know, like, <laughs> what do I have to say? Like, why does it matter? But I think um, for me, writing is kind of like exercise. Like, I don't do it every day, but if I stop doing it, I my whole life like starts to sort of fall apart. <laughs> No, I, I can understand that. I can definitely appreciate that. Um, so who are you reading now? Um, well, I'm almost finished with The Incendiaries by uh, R, I think it's R. Oquan. Uh, that just came out this summer. The summer is so nice for reading. I read um, Pachinko. I read a Stegner novel, Big Rock Candy Mountain, which was pretty horrifying and amazing. <laughs> Uh, I read Tayari Jones' is An American Marriage recently. Um, I'm pretty eclectic. I've been trying to read pretty contemporary fiction lately. Since it's such a strange time in America, it's nice to see people trying to sort of capture the mood of their particular subsect of this crazy country that we live in. <laughs> Sure, trying to grapple with it. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a fascinating time um, for contemporary fiction. That's definitely true. Um, congratulations as well. You were way more productive uh, this summer than I was. Um, so uh, uh, kudos, oh, kudos there um, in terms of your reading list. Um, so I guess, and that kind of leads to. I'm just curious um, in terms of your. Sometimes our literary influences are not necessarily the same as our favorite uh, writers to read. So I'm just kind of curious about who you would name as your influences or people you emulate and then and or um, just the writers that you enjoy the most, which okay, could be an overlap. Yeah. But um, The first person that comes to mind is Bolaño, uh, even though, you know, it's kind of hard to have him as somebody that you're trying to emulate just because he's so idiosyncratic and he's so, like, he's so dreamlike. Um, but I love his really expansive novels, uh, like 2666. Um, another person that comes to mind is Silco, which is uh, the Almanac of the Dead, is kind of like 2666 in this really dreamlike, almost seemingly formless type of narrative that uh, just totally transports you. And it's the type of thing where when you're reading it, you're like, I'm not sure if I'm retaining everything. But then you know, a year later, some of the images and moments are still so vivid in my mind uh, that I think it would I would be remiss not to not to mention those types of books. Who else could I say? I, I love, um, you know, in terms of short stories, I think Laurie Moore is really, really skillful. Mm-hmm. Uh, such a this is such a hard question because there's just so many. I feel like everything you read is has an effect. Um, on how you perceive like the next thing that you write. No, I think that's a that's a that's a fair answer. It's an un it's a fair answer to an unfair question. Putting you on the spot there. Um, but yeah, no, definitely we we absorb and can't help but be influenced by all the uh, the text to which we're exposed, both in our reading and writing. Um, uh, so I'm shifting gears a little bit, moving more towards your story in particular. Um, so there's 
there's a lot I really enjoy and I'm intrigued about in this piece in particular. Um, and it was really a pleasure uh, to work with you in terms of, of editing it. Um, uh, so um, there's your story involves a lot of instances of the unspeakable or the unspoken. There's these incomplete communications, questions people want to ask but they don't, or questions that are asked and they're left unanswered, or, or just all these failed attempts with communication or connection. Um, and I guess I'd be curious um, if you want to speak to that issue of the unspeakable. That's something that really jumped out at me, even from my first reading of it. Um, the unspeakable in that in your in this piece or in just in your writing in general. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, one thing that I find myself coming back to when I write is just the tension between your you know inner reality and the one that we all sort of participate in outwardly. Um, and I think, like, some people might be quick to say to this character, Sullivan, in the story, has PTSD. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying that he doesn't, but uh, I think that it's, it's a lot more complex than that. And, like, the relationships that we have to, like, trauma and to our collective traumas, like war, I feel like we're sort of always grasping at something and never quite getting there. Um, and I think that's something that's true with, with writing and with language is that you're always sort of trying to reach for something that is kind of slipping out of your hands. Uh, so, yeah, I think one way that the, the Sasquatch sort of comes in in the story is through this personification of the things that we don't say or the things that we can't say um, but that still influence and affect us all the time, even when we don't want them to. Uh, so I think that's a lot of what this story is sort of tangled in this idea of like trying to keep something in and yet finding that always sort of looking for avenues to come out. Yeah, so that leads nicely into um, th there's these strange interplays in this story. Um, you know, in the, the title of the piece itself, Cryptozoology, right? The study of you know, aiming to prove the existence of creatures like like the Sasquatch or the Bigfoot. And I kept thinking about that title and um, these failed attempts at communication or, or bringing things to the surface. Like you said, you know, the things that um, uh, that 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 keep coming up, even if we don't want to to speak of them. Um, and that made me think, too, about the the issue of uh, Sullivan's uh, tumors manifesting themselves in these symptoms. Yeah. Um, so all of these things, I guess, just arrive, arriving, arising to the surface. Um, I don't know, what yeah. were you... Um... So, yeah, I feel like especially with uh, any type of trauma, like obviously this character has endured something unspeakable, as the story says, um, but I think that we're kind of, with our, like, you know, the 17-year-long war that we've had in Afghanistan and the way that we treat war in the country, but there's this sort of dual approach of we ignore it like you know as someone who's in my 30s like many people in my age were veterans or are veterans and fought wars but we sort of the, the rest of us at home were kind of going through our life as though we were not uh, engaged in this type of global conflict and yet we also we sort of repress it and yet we also mythologize it in a way um, 
and I think that 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 tension of like the the cryptid or like the Bigfoot is like we build it up and it becomes this sort of holy figure, this this myth that we are all kind of worshiping, and yet at the same time the actual trauma of it is like really repressed and really unspoken, and then it finds its way to express itself. Uh, in the case of this character, it might be you know nightmares or disease, actual disease. Um, so I feel like there's this tension between the way we glorify trauma and the way we mythologize it and then also the way that we hide it simultaneously does that make sense no it definitely does yeah this way in which it's there and it's it's so present that we kind of ignore it um but like you said at the same time glorify and there's that tension between um uh what is it sullivan's mother sending the candy and her not like thinking that it was his favorite and you know not being aware of uh you know and um, oh, I'm fighting for this, and it's like, no, you're fighting for freedom, and and that almost cliched to the point where it's empty of meaning. The thank, the one, the, I forget exactly where, but somebody you know reaches out to him and says thank you for your service, and it's just you you do a lot of playing around with those things that become so omnipresent or common that they seem to lose meaning, and um, I really like that you give the voice you give to 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 what's going on with Sullivan. Um, thank you. You mentioned too, and, and we've talked about this. You know, ultimately, if we if we boil the plot down, it's a it's a story with a character dealing with um, these these. You know, to to be to risk being reductive, it's a character dealing with this genetic disorder, right? Um, right. A battle with his own within his own body. Um, so I was curious too, and we've kind of touched on this a bit, but just the role that embodiment plays in this piece, or in your fiction in general as well. Sure. Well, you know, I think that there's a really interesting tension just in our daily life between, like, am I, how connected are you to your body? And, like, um, whether ailments of the mind can be connected to the body. And for me, my, both my parents happen to be physicians. So I feel like my childhood was just a lot of discussion of disease. Like, it was a constant feature of the dinner table conversation. Uh, and I think that that's something that is, really ingrained in my fiction is like trying to understand how we relate to our bodies because we take them for granted until we can't basically um and and I think there is you know at the risk of sounding like new age I think there is a relationship between you know your emotional and your psychological health and sort of your physical health and how you grapple with the world like you know, it's your, it's the temple that you have to interact with the people around you. Um, but it's also sort of like this uh, sarcophagus of all the things that you've done in the past, and like the, the sort of muscle memory of of things that you won't consciously deal with stays in your in your flesh in a, in a strange way. Um, so, and I think. It was something that was really on my mind as I wrote this story because I was pregnant the whole time writing it and the relationship of your body was like really forefront in my in my mind um, because of that like sort of strange interplay between like the interior and the exterior and no definitely yeah definitely and and like you said it's it's easy to take for granted or forget our embodiment until 
either something is wrong or at least something unusual is happening. Um, yeah, and that right. idea of that idea of what we carry within kind of manifesting, um, tying into the either trauma or the unspeakable or, or um, uh, the character's genetics, I, yeah. I think we, there's this sort of strange moment and anytime someone endures something traumatic where you kind of look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, but I look the same, like, but they're, they're, you want some physical, like, sort of sign of something that happened internally and yet, like, it's not there. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum, you, you know, notice how things sort of touch up to you as you age and like the mistakes or the moments of illness kind of accumulate even though you want to feel sort of always forever young it doesn't quite work out that way (laughs) yeah yeah um we're almost getting on uh, the verge of dorian gray here um uh um so what other projects are you working on right now, either in terms of creative writing or fiction or other um, in terms of uh, academia or your teaching? Yeah, I'm teaching. I teach five classes a, every semester, so it's a, it's a lot. Um, but yeah, I just finished recently finished an essay that I wrote about meeting an emergency C-section, which is, again, kind of a strange relationship between like medicine and modern medicine and like the physical body and... Uh, this tension between like, you know, am I, am I uh, beholden to my body or not? Um, and then, like many writers, I have you know that novel that's <laughs> in a folder on your computer, right? Asking for attention every so often. And then I also have another, a couple other short stories that, like this story, you know, as I mentioned, it sort of marinated for a couple years and I have a few documents like that too on my computer just sort of waiting for the right time to feel like I can put it together sometimes it's like a puzzle you know definitely yeah it takes um takes the right motivation and just yeah I find I have to let stuff really germinate in my mind before something things start to click and yeah those notes and scribbles start to form something coherent yeah um, well, is there anything else um, you'd like to share with our audience about your thoughts on this piece or writing in general or just anything else? I'll say something else about this story. It sort of um, came to me, I went to Alaska a couple of years ago to visit a friend of ours that was living on an army base um, up there near Fairbanks. And I think at the time that it just happened in 2016, you know, it was really easy to feel like, you know, it's an us versus them type of America. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I really wanted to do in this story was to try to inhabit the mind and the position of somebody who had lived a very different life than I had. Um, and to sort of just like a, as an exercise in empathy for me, because I think especially in 2016, it was easy to feel like resentful or horrified of the way that people were reacting to the political climate. Sure. Um, and especially when you, you know, I'm somebody who grew up in Los Angeles and, you know, spent quite a lot of time living in Brooklyn. So to be on an army base in Alaska was definitely a departure from, you know, my typical sort of friend milieu. <laughs> and it was really interesting to see the way that people on the army base 
uh, interacted with this idea of war, especially the young people who, you know, were not older than my students um, and were sort of totally divorced from the actual kind of aftermath of it. And then people like my friend and other people his age who obviously have been through a lot um, and had a different way of, of dealing with it. But then at the same time, it was all sort of unspoken and instead everyone just played softball. Um, so I think that's something that, so that was sort of the initial thing that, that drove me to write the story was to try to, just as an exercise in empathy, um, to try to see something from a person whose perspective I might be, my knee-jerk reaction might be to say, like, I don't know how you think that or why are you, you know, why do you support this or why do you think that? Um, and just trying to sort of live that that other mind. And so I think that's why I included a lot of things that I would you know, never do. Like as a 31-year-old woman I would and mother, I would not like go to a strip club, you know. Not to say that I've never been to one, but I'm not trying to go to strip clubs, but I'm not trying to, um, you know, I don't have like an American flag decal on my truck, you know? Like these little things, but I think it's really easy to reduce people to these sort of cartoon moments. And I just wanted for myself to humanize it. Um, because as I mentioned, I live kind of in the middle of nowhere and I encounter a lot of these trucks with really strange patriotic decals and, you know, there's a lot of visits to strip clubs and similar types of places without much thinking about it. You know, in Arizona, we've got a lot of those bikini beans coffee shops where these, like, girls just wear these tiny bikinis and serve coffee um, in the mornings. Like, those types of things that are just totally normal to some people and, for me, seem, like, kind of horrifying. So <laughs> I was trying, I guess, to live someone else's life and I think those are the most fun stories to write um the ones where you can really be yourself in someone else's narrative definitely I mean I, I find them very challenging um but yeah that's a great challenge to have and what a great tool in terms of like you said an intellectual exercise to build empathy I mean that's that's one of the reasons I love literature and writing in general, right, is just trying to, yeah, to build um, clear communication and empathy and better understanding. And so we can say, I find this problematic. I can't see how anyone doesn't. Okay, let me try to get in that person's head. Yeah, I think that's a great, um, uh, that's a really great way to approach it. And um, that saved me the trouble of kind of having to ask you the the cliche question of, you know, where did this story originate from? So thank you for for offering that up as well. so Kathleen, I think that about wraps up all uh, my questions for today. Thank you so much for your time and um, for uh, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you today. You too. It's great to um, have a chance to really get into this story and I'm so happy to hear that you guys enjoy it. So Kathleen, while we've got you, I would we would love to hear you read uh, um, a passage or two from from this piece, if you wouldn't okay. mind. Sure. Um, I picked a few that I thought might work. Is there one in mind that you prefer, or uh, should I just go with whatever I think? I would prefer to let you choose what you want to share. Okay. Okay. Uh, I I think I'll read um, something from sort of the beginning, but not quite the beginning. All right. 
We stop for lunch at the Dream Palace. It's against army rules, but I'm Josh's CEO, and we figure an afternoon show can't be as raunchy as late night. Josh convinces me. Everyone knows they have the best fried chicken. I park in back where the American flag airbrushed on my tailgate won't be recognizable from the street, and where moose loop through the mud like they're curious about the girls inside. Inside, they're blasting Journey's greatest hits while Goldie Rush climbs a pole, burlesque tassels on her nipples. She's a nice girl. She'll give you half a free lap, da- lap dance if you show her your military ID. Says it's her patriotic duty. Second half is 20 bucks. A redhead named Diamond greets us at the velvet curtain entrance. You two again? Diamond has pre-emphysema voice. After her third kid, she retired from the stage and started waiting tables. She holds out menus and points us to our seats, but when I pull out a chair to sit down, I'm frozen. In my back, I feel pain like walls cracking. A claw has crawled up my spine, seizing bone, ligament, muscle. What's wrong? I can read Diamond's moving lips, but I can't hear her. All I can hear is shrieking tinnitus, sharp enough to mute, don't stop believing. Then it's gone, and so is she. Josh leans forward in his chair, slides me a menu. I sit down carefully. I know a chiropractor you can see. Went there myself and sent Goldie to him once when she threw out her back. Look at her now. He nods towards stage. Goldie has a gold-dusted leg wrapped around the pole. She spins upside down, hair dangling to the floor. Her face turns plumb with blood and gravity. And she's in heels. He grins, like he's the one invented strippers. At the softball game, when I throw from third to first, it feels like my arms are toy arms. My spine is a joke spine, coiling from dirt, attached like a wire spring. The ball clunks into a dugout, ground rule double. Son of a bitch, screams Josh, chugging his glove in the air. We lose 6-4. Okay, I pick another passage um yeah uh, we'd love it uh, maybe one more passage of your choosing if you're up for sure. it yes um okay i'm going to read one from near the end after the biopsy i don't hear from the doctor for three days and i assume then that i'm going to die third degree i don't know what i'm going to say to my mother when i call her she asks me if i like the care package she sent I say yes, but it's still sitting on the kitchen counter, unopened. I sent those sour candies you always used to ask for when you were deployed, she says. You still like them? Those are for the kids, I tell her. Local kids. She sounds disappointed, so I add that yes, I still like them. Light in the room dims, then brightens, then dims again, and I have to sit down. Now that I know I have tumors, I feel them at every movement. They chafe when I reach to turn on a lamp. They cut like gear teeth when Blue tugs his leash. What I thought was a spider bite that wouldn't heal behind my knee now seems to vibrate when I walk. You don't sound so good, says Mom. Are you sure everything's okay? Blue is barking at a squirrel outside, and the walls around me have a pulse, so I tell her I'll talk to her later. Then, because I can't tell my mother the truth, I call Brenda, so if I never get to the part where I'm dying, because Brenda has a new husband now, and she says she's sorry, but she doesn't want to talk because she doesn't know who I am inside because I refuse to tell her what I did over in Afghanistan to earn that bronze star while she sat at home waiting for me and watching the war on television. I tell her I'm sorry, too. For what, she asks, expecting more. All right, so yeah, we'll let you um, select one more uh, passage to hear from your piece. Okay, all right. When spring arrives, an unusual heat comes with it and layers of permafrost begin to melt. Someone finds mastodon tusks that have been frozen in ice for 100,000 years. 
I'm devising a war game for the unit, pretending North Bolivians are fighting South Bolivians over water. Then Josh gets transferred to Texas. I hear he's deploying to Syria, and I'm lonely. And one day I go to the post office, trying to work up enough nerve to ask Swayze on a date, but she's not there. Instead, in the newspaper vending box in the lobby, I see the front page story of the North Star Gazette. A teenager walking home at night, hit by a car, dead. They run his prom photo, his baseball stat. I recognize the yellow rose. We had him cremated, says Hockham, when I knock on the door of his RV and find him unraveled in gray as a dish rag. I don't know why I'm visiting. I barely know him, but I can't stop myself. We scattered his ashes in the Tanana and washed, watched him float downstream. Hockham has newspapers and fast food wrappers and smashed cereal boxes stacked up inside his RV. His chiropractic table is strewn with dirty clothes. And at that very moment, he says, that blonde Bigfoot emerged from the trees, very solemn-like. She sang a magnificent song for him. It didn't have words, just sounds, ethereal sounds. He slumps onto his table. I know you don't believe me, he says, crying into his mouth, but other people saw it too. I pat him on the back. I'm not good with feelings, but I tell him I understand what grief can do to a person. Then I tell him how, in Afghanistan, we used to carry sour candy in our packs to give to children when we showed up at their homes to question their fathers. Two sisters in the Korngal village used to fight over the green ones, so I always made sure I had a handful when we arrived at their house. And while we pressed their father for intel, the girls stood with their mother by the foot, pointing and giggling at each other's green mouths. After we gave them candy, those girls weren't afraid of us anymore. That meant a lot to me, I tell him, to be seen as human, to be trusted. What's that got to do with anything, says Ho asks Hockham. He's sitting on a pile of used towels. I don't know the answer. It's just a story Brenda liked, probably because I never told her the ending. Fantastic. Um, so... I also would like to say, having just read that passage, that uh, all these details about Bigfoot are actually stories I've heard from people who really think that they've seen Bigfoot. So this idea of Bigfoot singing at a funeral was a story somebody told me about a Bigfoot that they claimed to have encountered here in Arizona. <laughs> that is interesting. Um, uh, oh, that's that, that reminds me, actually. One question I... Um, I can't believe I almost forgot. Um, do you believe in Bigfoot? I have to ask that. <laughs> um, well, do I believe in Bigfoot? Uh, I'm not going to rule it out. Uh, I'm not going to be... I, actually, I saw a couple of weeks ago or something, there was a Bigfoot festival, I think, in North Carolina. Wasn't there? Um, if there was, I did was not aware of it. I did not attend. <laughs> you know... The interesting thing about crypto, cryptozoology, obviously it's a pseudoscience and cryptids, is that you know for a long time things like the Komodo dragon was a cryptid or uh, the giant squid was a cryptid. Um, obviously we know those things do exist. I think that it is unlikely, um, but it's interesting. You know, a lot of times we imagine Bigfoot as this sort of primitive creature that lurks in the woods, particularly in the Pacific Northwest or whatever, that's basically monster-like. Um, but I think one thing that really struck me about this this particular rendering of Bigfoot that I have in the story is that the character, the chiropractor, envisions Bigfoot as like basically some kind of like interdimensional magical being uh, that doesn't really operate by the same rules that, that we do. So I guess if you're somebody who believes that 
those types of interdimensional beings might exist, then perhaps Bigfoot is one of them. I'm not sure if I am one of those people, but I like to imagine that it is possible. Just because I think, you know, why not? Like, what's the harm in... Fair enough. Yeah. No. If if Bigfoot is real, I I like this rendition best. Um. And that that the beautiful song she sings at the end, a song again to return to the unspeakable, a song without words just sounds. Um. So. All right. Well. Yeah. And you know, actually, there is around here where I live, um, a local fire chief was quoted in the paper saying that there are families of Bigfoot that travel around the Mugyon Rim, which is right where I live. It's like the very lowest part of the Colorado Plateau. And uh, people claim to hear them screaming, quote, like a woman, 20-foot woman getting branded with a hot iron, which is another line of the story, uh, all the time, apparently. Uh, and I have met people who claim to have had those experiences, but I myself have not. Well, I, we are all learning a lot about uh, cryptozoology <laughs> today, so... <laughs> All right. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for reading your passages and for sharing your insights on your process and uh, your um, this piece in particular and your writing in general. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a really fun experience for me to talk to you guys about it, and I really appreciate your interest. All right. Thank you. Now on CQ Speaks, we'll move from cryptozoology to physics and transition to another piece featured in our fall-winter 68.1 issue, a poem by Charlotte Muzi titled Bernoulli's Principle Does Not Explain Flight, read by the author. This is followed by poetry editor Calvin Olson's explanation, which sort of begins in situ, of his reading of the poem and how he chose it. Bernoulli's Principle Does Not Explain Flight The fact is that we don't know how it works, he says. Mathematically, we should be dead. Below, the scattered lights of Georgia seem to tilt, then slide away. This isn't what I want to hear. Apparently, the books are wrong. Across the aisle, another dolt chimes in. Perhaps then it's some trick of God's. But suddenly there's light, we've pierced the clouds. A low ding prompts the flight attendants to their small ministrations, juice and tiny cups of strange spheroidal ice. For most, whatever sheen of drama coats the miracle of flight subsides. Not so over here. This $200 million beast defies the thought we're somehow in control of what becomes of us. Still, the moon wedged in my portal window rests her silver knife of light along the wing. It's almost possible to forget what's going on down there. The patchwork crops, the braided nest of interstates and outlet malls. There are worse vices, after all, than to entertain this common wish. That it might be all right to die up here, providing it were quick. And anyway, it all seems hardly real. Below, a silver field of clouds expands like something from a nursery rhyme or from another sort of dream, a stage so beautiful it just might be okay that we may have to name our gods, but in the end, nobody watches over us. It's four hours still to Portland. By now, our physicist has drifted off. Perhaps he's right. Perhaps it's all just simply inexplicable. What we're doing on this earth, and my presence here specifically, resigned, half-dreaming, 
musing out the window at that blue-black sky and deeper silence, punctuated by the cold, clandestine brilliance of the stars. I love this poem of Charlotte's, and I think I, I like it more every time that I read it, uh, which is a bonus. It's not something I think I look for specifically when I go through a poem, but I'm very much on board with the way that this thing develops. Um, for me, titles are big, as I believe I've mentioned before. So Bernoulli's principle does not explain flight. I haven't fact-checked that, um, but if that's the case, uh, between that and the first two lines, the fact is that we don't know how it works. He says, mathematically, we should be dead. I love the way that the poem opens with very high stakes. It's one of those things where I need Charlotte to deliver and I think she does as we move through the poem. She doesn't get where I think we're going to go, which is another sign that, you know, that surprise element is something that I was kind of trained to look for um, when I was first starting out in the biz. So I love those stakes. Um, technically, uh, this poem does all kinds of things. The line breaks are fantastic. That third line, below the scattered lights of Georgia, you know, as they tilt and slide away, we're we're building the moment of this being in the plane, right? We have takeoff. We're not going to get landing. We don't get to that point. Um, but I do love the way that those line breaks work super well. And along, when we're sticking with the technical stuff, I really enjoy the way that a lot of these lines are written iambically. So this isn't what I want to hear. Across the aisle, another dolt chimes in. My favorite is probably in tiny cups of strange spheroidal ice. That's just that's just great writing. Um, the poetic devices work really well um, as well. Moving down as the plane becomes a beast. Um, kind of the bread and butter of this poem, I think, is the way that Charlotte is able to use the poetic devices um, to connect a fear of flying to the poem without actually talking that much about the actual fear of flying. Um, so we get a lot at the same time, we get kind of this really beautiful strangeness of space and perspective type of um, theme to the poem uh, that comes up a lot uh, when she's talking about the moon. Starting at the lines, still the moon wedged in my portal window rests her silver knife of light along the wing. It's almost possible. I love, again, line breaks are killing it right there, right? And we also have this strangeness of space and perspective where the moon fits in your window. In this case, it's a little bit too big to be where it is in the window, um, but it's, you know we're closer to it because we're flying. All of the pieces kind of work together and kind of swirl around this center idea of flight not being anything that we really think it is, right? It's this strange liminal space where, you know, you're in this thing that moves at hundreds of miles an hour and really you're just hanging out eating peanuts. And that's brilliant to, to kind of bring that up in this way. Last thing I'll throw out, um, just cause I wanna be quick about this for today. Um, I really love that there's no fear of death in the speaker, despite having, it seems, a fear of flying. And as we move down to the end of the poem, uh, as we remove God, who was placed there by the dolt at the beginning of the poem, the act of flying becomes a miracle. 
it's the miracle of this poem. It's that religious aspect, I guess, if you want to read it that way. Um, but the act of flying itself is so incredible that it eases the anxiety that comes with the act of flying. So that's a really, really awesome sentiment. And by the end of the poem, there's not really an answer and there doesn't have to be, you know, we can have lots of questions and I love that Charlotte just leaves it at that place where, okay, now we are done. Now we're through it. And if you've flown before, especially flown at night, um, then you've got all of that working toward your own version of this um, and without names. Again, I really appreciate in the second line it says he, and I'm not given a specific name. To, I can plug that he in for people that I've sat next to on planes as well. So all in all, it's an amazing poem. I really love it. It reminds me of one of my favorite essays, again, by Mary Rufel, um, which is called Poetry in the Moon, which is from her book Madness, Rack, and Honey. I really, really like the way that Charlotte works within the poem to build a space that I have been in, but to give me a different way of seeing that space the next time that I'm in it. That's 100% what I'm looking for in what's a phenomenal poem in this case. That's a wrap for this episode of CQ Speaks. Be sure to like our podcast and subscribe wherever you're hearing it. You can keep up with the Carolina Quarterly by liking and following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Carolina Quarterly and on Twitter at NC underscore quarterly. Our website is thecarolinaquarterly.com. There you can buy individual issues in print and digital formats and um, subscribe to make sure you never miss, miss an issue. Be on the lookout for our fall winter issue 68.1 in November. You can also submit poems, short fiction, nonfiction, and art through the website and submittable. Are you already subscribed but want to do even more to help us put out great writing and keep this podcast going? You can make a donation through PayPal um, to carolina.quarterly0168 at gmail.com. Um, be on the lookout for our Next episode, uh, next month, we will have a journal club discussing the new issue with our two former editors who did a lot of the contest reading, and we will talk about kind of how that process went down. Um, in the meantime, read well, write well, and thanks for listening to CQ Speaks. Mm-hmm.